Thank you, Kirk, and the worship team. I uh, mentioned earlier, and then even last week when I was here, um, just so grateful uh, to be able to worship with you and uh, how fitting the worship songs are to prepare our hearts uh, to hear from God's Word. Um, uh, for those who weren't here last week, um, my name is Kurt Weaver, and I'm the director of the Church Ambassador Network at Pennsylvania Family Institute. And our organization, if you're not familiar with us, we're based in Harrisburg, and we do a number of different things. We represent uh, the faith community in Harrisburg, and so we work with legislators, uh, we help them to make good and righteous policy and laws in Harrisburg. Uh, and we also have a law team that represents uh, Christians all over the state in religious liberty issues uh, in the courts. And then um, we work on advocacy and education, helping people understand what's happening around our world and certainly here in our state. And then I get the opportunity to work with pastors and churches all over the state as well. And uh, we're trying to do our best to kind of uh, do away with that wall that stands between church and state uh, that really should not be there. Uh, the only reason it stands there is to keep the government, uh, the state, out of the affairs of the church. Uh, but the church should always be looking for ways to engage uh, because we are God's people. This is his world. And uh, we want to make sure that good and righteous things that the Lord uh, desires of is done in our world. And so I take pastors in to meet with legislators, to pray for them, share the gospel, read scripture, and then look for ways to partner as well uh, to bring about good things in our society. Um, I used to be one of the pastors over at Crossway Church. Um, we consider you guys a sister church uh, of uh, like-minded faith, and uh, we just we, we love you all. And I've known your pastors for a very long time. You guys are well-served here as a church. And uh, you're a beacon of the gospel uh, here in this community. And uh, today I have my wife, Renee, here. And uh, we have eight children uh, who are not here. Uh, I don't know where they are today. They're somewhere around. Um, but uh, uh, so we're grateful to, uh, to be here. Uh, but before we get started, I wanted to bring to your attention uh, something that's really exciting that's happening uh, this coming September in Harrisburg, and it is the Pennsylvania March for Life. Uh, our organization, Pennsylvania Family Institute, and the National March for Life are teaming up together uh, to host the very first Pennsylvania March for Life in Harrisburg on September 27th. Uh, you don't want to miss it. It is a Monday. It's midday, 11 to 2. But what a great opportunity for us to stand on the steps of the Capitol, to stand for the sanctity of life, and let our legislators know that uh, we care about life. Pennsylvanians truly care about life, the unborn, and we should, uh, we should do all we can to make abortion unthinkable in this world. And so if you can join us, it'd be great. We're going to do a march around the Capitol. Um, it's not a Jericho march. We don't want the walls to collapse in on all the legislators there. Um, but we do want to make our voices heard uh, for the, uh, the voices that are silent, uh, the voices that are unheard um, in our world, uh, the unborn. And so please join us for that. Well, last week when I was here, uh, we took a look at how Christians should respond as we live in a hostile culture and world. And as the world continues to promote and even force their humanistic beliefs on us, uh, we must be extremely discerning uh, and even critical of our secular world at times because of their ideology and because of their lies 
they believe in lies. Satan, uh, he really is the, the king of lies. And uh, he is certainly promoting the spirit of the age. And at times we need to push back and we need to speak and we need to stand for the truth and do so, as we talked about last week, uh, with love. But we have to do it with courage as well. And this morning we're going to take, at, we're going to take a look at one of the topics that our world so often um, skews and, um, and brings about lies when it comes to the value of life. And so uh, this morning we're going to look at the value of life at the end of life. Uh, normally, we as Christians, we talk about the sanctity of life. We focus on the value of the lives of the unborn, um, which we should, and it is right, because there is a war against the unborn in this country. But today I'd like to take a little bit of a detour and examine a topic that's not too often discussed, but uh, equally important, and that is the value and dignity of life, human life, at the end of life. Uh, many of us, if you're like me, uh, I have gray hair, and so I am nearer to the end of life than I am at the beginning uh, of life. And uh, yes, we need to be vigilant to stand for the unborn and the orphans and the neglected, uh, but we have to also be thinking about not just our own coming death, but also uh, the coming death for our loved ones. And it becomes more and more relevant uh, the older we get, does it not? In 1990, Dr. Kevorkian, remember that name? Uh, some of you weren't born in 1990, and that's okay. Uh, but Dr. Kevorkian, also known as the Doctor of Death, uh, he assisted in his first um, doctor-assisted suicide with a 54-year-old woman diagnosed with Alzheimer's in her own suicide. And although his medical license was revoked for such a heinous action, over the next eight years, he continued to assist in the suicides of over 130 patients until he was convicted of the second-degree murder in 1998 and put in jail. I remember that, uh, that time period uh, very well. But unfortunately, things have changed in our world. <laughs> in today's world, Kevorkian's activity and actions would tragically be legal. In fact, uh, currently seven states allow doctor-assisted suicide, with more states coming on board each and every year. Even here in PA, we've had legislation um, uh, put forth. But we've been able to keep it at bay and hold it back for a number of years. Praise God for that. But our world, interestingly, calls these laws death with dignity. Death with dignity. But that really what it is? Is it really death with dignity? My main idea this morning as we dive into this topic is, is this. Concern for the quality of human life should not override the intrinsic value of human life. You understand that? Concern for the quality of life should not override the value of human life. And to unpack that statement, we have two simple points this morning. 
Uh, Where does human value come from? And who owns life? And what is the purpose of it? And so this morning we're going to dive into our first point, which is where does human value come from? And I'm sure you know, it comes from God. And we see so in Scripture. In fact, we're going to go back to the beginning, Genesis 1, 26, Genesis 1, 26 to 27. It states, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. You see the Trinitarian word right there. In our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. Very good. Maybe we've heard these verses so often that we miss the incredibleness of this passage. You know, we are the only beings, the only created beings created in the image of God. After God, who is the Trinitarian God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have this creation mandate to have dominion over our world, over every living thing. But after God created us, he said this. As he looked over all of his creation, he says, Oh, behold, this is very good. You see, humans, all of us, are at the pinnacle of God's creation. We are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. This alone gives inherent dignity and intrinsic value to our lives. And to every human being who lives. Therefore, determining that lives are not worth living or don't have a fundamental value rejects the dignity that we are created with. Because we are image bearers of God, our creator. Later in Genesis, uh, after the flood, actually, God once again gives a covenant and reiterates the creation mandate to Noah and his offspring. Genesis 9 Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I'm very happy that verse is in Scripture. Are you? Everything. (laughs) Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And then the lesser thing, as I gave you the green plants, right? You're like, okay, yeah, vegetables. All right, good. But all the moving things, grateful for meat. That's good, okay? Um, the Lord gives us these things as a gift to us uh, for nourishment. So, as I, have, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. And for, listen to this, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. We're not going to get too deep into it, but you see even there, the foreshadowing of Christ in the gospel, right? Christ who stands in our place. Christ who sheds his blood for us so that we might be saved. 
According to God, every human life is to be valued so highly that it is to be protected above all because God created humanity again in his own image. All the other created things in this world, right? They're not God's image. In fact, they're for us to enjoy, for us and our nourishment. But with humanity, we are full of dignity. And ending an innocent human life is simply an attack on God, the designer and the creator and the owner of all life. So let's examine a few end-of-life scenarios and apply biblical truths to it. Sam is a 73-year-old man who unfortunately is diagnosed with an aggressive type of cancer. He decides to receive cancer treatments, but nothing works and the cancer continues to ravage his body and his organs start to waste away and his pain increases tremendously. And four years later, after a long battle, at the age of 77, he is tired of fighting. He tells his wife one day that he's done living and he wants her to seek doctor-assisted suicide to end his constant suffering and to free his family from the burden of watching him die. After many sleepless nights, his family finally agrees to accept his request because ultimately it's what Sam really wants. And he's endured four horrific years of suffering with no hope of a cure in sight. We can easily see how tempting it would be to forget what Scripture says that we hold life as a high value. Here's another scenario. Joey is a healthy 14-year-old boy with a good mind and a promising future when unfortunately he is struck with cancer. His parents put Joey through an aggressive cancer treatment, even using new experimental medicine. They try everything they can afford, and then some. But after years and years of battling, they're told that the cancer is progressing and that Joey is not, sadly, going to improve. His weight drops to a mere 65 pounds, and he's only able to stay awake for a few hours a week. He becomes clinically depressed and begins to despair of life itself. Recognizing that his life is almost over, Joey asks his parents if there's a way they can help him end his suffering. His parents tell him, no, we will do everything we can to help you beat this cancer. We will not give up hope. And so they tell him, Joey, you have your whole life in front of you. No, we're not going to end your life. Both these stories are heartbreaking, aren't they? I mean, really, the... No example can quite capture the reality of watching a loved one beg 
to be put out of their misery unless you've endured this experience. You see, when we, we get into these difficult areas in life and topics, it's where understanding Scripture really helps us. We, we have to cling and lean into God's Word instead of accepting what the world calls acceptable. But we've got to ask a few questions when we come to these two stories. You see, does the value of human life change based on someone's circumstances? Does it change based on someone's age or on their health? Does it change based upon someone's degree of suffering or even their personal desires and wishes? The answer is no, right? But it's hard. It's hard. Let's go a little further and unpack some of these things that we see in our world. And some of these terms and definitions are really important for us to understand. Euthanasia, right, is when a doctor kills a patient with lethal injection. Killing them. Physician or doctor-assisted suicide is when a doctor gives a patient lethal medicine so that they can take their own life. And then thirdly, we have the withdrawal of care, right? Or some of you might have experienced this. A doctor removes life-sustaining care, usually when no recovery is possible, and allows the patient to naturally pass away peacefully. So we've got to discuss each of these terms to see how they fit into the biblical framework. Euthanasia, okay? All humans have value because they are image bearers of God. And because of that, the shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden. Therefore, euthanasia is murder and is morally and biblically wrong. Okay, right? Taking a life is wrong. Doctor-assisted suicide, we have to think through this carefully, again, because we are image bearers of God and we have intrinsic value. Aiding in someone's death is also an affront to Scripture's call for the sanctity of life. Just because someone wants to die doesn't mean that helping them is the moral thing to do. In fact, it's not. And then the third category, withdrawal of care, right? Withholding treatment that no longer benefits a patient is not immoral. Let me explain. Yes, intentionally killing an innocent life for any reason is, so euthanasia and doctor-assisted suicide intentionally kill an innocent human being. But withholding medical care when it's absolutely certain that a patient will not recover is allowing the patient to die from natural Causes instead of taking their life. Why? Because then God decides. He decides the number of days. 
The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? And so allowing natural death to run its course in terminally ill patients does not violate the sanctity of human life. Actually, it promotes it. Now, I understand we, we must never forget that, that dying patients, even those who are unresponsive, are still of value and still bear the image of God and still should be treated with dignity. And so just to be clear, we're never to intentionally end human suffering via euthanasia or doctor-assisted suicide because that is murder or assisting in murder. Writer Mary Worcester uh, says this, and this is so helpful. Although it may sometimes appear to be an act of compassion, killing is never a means of caring. True caring is holding someone's hand and suffering right alongside of them. We should maximize care and minimize the suffering, but let us not immorally eliminate the sufferer. Listen, I understand, and we all understand, right? These are extremely difficult things. Making the withdrawal of care decision is hard, and some of you have had to make it with your loved ones. But it must be done with a great deal of care and wisdom and consideration for what is best for the individual and the family and, and ultimately what glorifies God. It's tough, but we must use wisdom in the midst of those decisions. In regards to doctor-assisted suicide, uh, author and speaker Scott Klusendorf um, he gives us these important questions to consider. So he gives a scenario. So he says, who gets suicide prevention and who gets suicide assistance, right? Or, or who should we prevent from killing themselves or who should we help in them killing themselves? He says, nearly always the question will expose a failure to treat human beings equally due to age or disability. And he gives this little dialogue. He says, what if I would say this? Should an 80-year-old depressed man get suicide prevention or suicide assistance? A critic might say, it's his choice. Let him decide. It's his life. Scott goes on. He goes, okay, what if I offer this question? Should we offer doctor-assisted suicide to an 18-year-old who is chronically depressed? The critic would say, well, no, that's different. He has his whole life in front of him. And then he says this, note in this case, the defender of doctor-assisted suicide discriminates on the basis of age. He will provide suicide prevention to the youth, but not the elderly. That is ageism and does not value human life. 
Scott continues, he goes, what if I said, should a healthy 35-year-old suffering from chronic depression get suicide prevention or suicide assistance? Again, the critic says, well, suicide prevention. I mean, he still has a lot of life ahead of him. Plus, he most likely has a family, and so let's treat his depression. Well, what if I said, what about a healthy 35-year-old or a, not a healthy 35-year-old who is depressed and he's a paralegic? Now what? A chronic paralegic. Suffering in life. And the critic would say, oh, well, that's his choice. If he wants to end his life, he should be able to end his life. Well, you see, <laughs> right there, we are not treating people equally. We are not treating people with dignity. To say some people have intrinsic value and other people do not because of what? Their suffering or even their stage in life. That is not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that all people have value, that all people have dignity, no matter what they're going through in their lives. No matter their state in life, no matter their health. So my point is this, all innocent human life is equal regardless of what the world may think. And all human life is sacred no matter the level of suffering or illness they are experiencing. It's funny, recently I shared uh, that I was actually planning this message with one of my neighbors. And um, <laughs> it's not often you tell your neighbor, um, oh yeah, I'm preaching on euthanasia this coming Sunday. <laughs> and uh, she uh, was quick to share her opinion. And she says, well, my thoughts are that it's a very personal and individual decision. It's their decision, it's the individual's decision to make. And I just simply said, shot back, well, I guess it depends on who you think the owner of that life is. Right? Who, who actually gets to make that decision? Who owns that life? Is it the individual? Or is it someone else? And that brings us to our second point. So who actually does own life? I mean all life, our lives, our loved ones' lives. Who owns life and what is the purpose of life? So along with the world's theology and the things they believe, I'm sure you've heard some of these catchphrases, right? My body, my choice, right? You hear the ideology coming through there? It's mine. It's my body. It's my choice. Or the idea, the, the phrase right now is, that's very uh, current. I hear it from my kids. You do you. <laughs> you do you, Dad. You do you. You want to tell dad jokes? You do you. You want to wear that? You do you. You do you, Dad. <laughs> um, or, you know, it's your life. Do what you want to do. Right? We hear that in songs. Um, or, you know, the whole, the whole Disney ideology, you know, basically, do whatever makes you happy. Follow your dreams. Make yourself happy. You know? So are all those things true? Are all those things lies? Who does own life? And what is the purpose of life? Well, 
I'm sure you know it well because you guys are well taught here at this church. The Westminster Catechism gives us all the answers we need. (laughs) But this is really helpful, right? It brings out biblical truth. What is the chief end of man? What is man's purpose, basically? Well, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In fact, we get this from Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10.31 and other places in the Scripture, of course. But, you know, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So what is the purpose of our lives in whatever we do? It's to glorify God. And so our life's goal is to glorify God in everything and even in suffering. Suffering that make, it might make us want to end our lives or even question our purposes on this earth. The scriptures continue to talk about who owns life. Ezekiel 18 says this, Behold, all souls are mine. Right? I mean, right there. Who owns life? God. All souls are mine. Every single soul. Those who are believers and those who are unbelievers. He owns everything in this world. Even though this world is tainted by sin, God is still sovereign. He still has the authority over all things in our world. Psalm 24, David writes, The earth is the Lord's, and everyone who dwells in it, everyone is owned by God. So it's clear biblically that God is the creator and the owner of all life from inception to first breath to final breath and into eternity. God is the owner. You ever think about this? We are going to live for eternity. Souls created in the image of God because God is eternal. We are are also eternal, and we're either going to live eternity with Him or we're going to live for eternity with suffering and in hell. You see, suicide or taking an innocent life is trying to assume ownership over something that we do not own whether it's a baby in the womb, a person struggling through terminal cancer, or someone facing clinical long-term depression, God owns that person's life. Therefore, listen, it's a rejection of the dependence of God, the author of life and the controller of death. We reject God and His place in this world when we do those things. I'm I'm sure I understand some of us here this morning are facing hard health issues. Some of us are facing extreme, difficult life circumstances. Some of us here are facing significant depression where the darkness just 
It doesn't seem to lift. And it never seems to end. That's hard. And maybe some of us here today have even thought about or considered even ending our lives. I, I know, I know that my words probably seem hollow if you're facing those things. But I want you to hear this. Your life matters. Your life, it matters. Your life has value. You're God's created being. He loves you and your life. And your life has value to God. And you might not feel it, but your life has value in this world. And so I say, dear believer, keep your eyes on Christ, no matter what you're going through. I went through one of the hardest times of my life four years ago. I was filled with depression, shame, torment, anxiety. Uh, the list could go on and on. I wanted to run and just hide away. Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> if I could dig a hole and hide in it, I would. You ever feel that way? <laughs> I did in that moment. I thought at times, like Job, it would be better if I wasn't alive. If I was just dead, so I could get rid of this misery that I was facing in this world. But, to the praise and glory to God, He continued to remind me, to remind me that He has and will fulfill His purposes in all that I was going through. You see, one of the fruits of being faithful through a trial is that you become a testimony of God's grace and power. Do you realize that? That the hardships, the, the trials, the, the suffering, even, even the, the health issues that you're going through, although very, very painful, and it weighs heavy on us all, if we are faithful through those trials, we become, by God's grace, a testimony of His grace in this world. Over the last four years, it wasn't me pulling myself up by my bootstraps or me just having a positive attitude in this life, right? No, it it was me walking in the faithfulness of God because God was faithful to me. And others who were around me saw that. And they would often come up to me, encourage me, and say, the way that you are handling your suffering and what you're going through in life, and you are still being faithful to Christ in the midst of it, is an encouragement to my faith and my walk with the Lord. And so let's not lose hope or even consider that our lives are not meaningful or have purpose when you're going through hard things in life. 
You know, the idea that we are autonomous and independent individuals, free to do whatever we want to do with our lives, it is not in line with biblical truth. Our lives are meant to be lived in accordance with God's design for our lives. So he created us, right? As we saw earlier, he owns life. We're not our own. We are owned by him. But the problem is, is that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's sin in our lives. There's sin in this world. And too often we go our own ways. We pursue our selfish ambition. We pursue our own selfish happiness. And we end up slapping God in the face with our arrogance and our pride. We've broken his commandments. And we pursued not his glory, but we pursued our glory. And how often do we fail to value life in a general sense, not just our, our own lives, but even the lives around us? We, we lie to people. We mock people. We scorn people. We, we fight with people. We manipulate people. We hurt people. And we put ourselves before others so often you got to hear this, believers. We might say we're pro-life, but are we in general? Do we really, truly care and treat others with dignity? The people around us, the people in our lives, the people that God has put in our circles? You see, the Apostle Paul felt this very deeply as he wrote Romans 7. He understood that many times the things he won, wanted to do, he didn't do. And the things that he didn't want to do, he did. And so the Apostle Paul had a very good grasp on the doctrine of sin, the sin that dwells within each of us. And he writes this, Oh, wretched man that I am! Oh, he sees his sin, as we all should. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The sin that dwells within, the, the sin that I deserve eternal death for. But in that moment, as we all should do, Paul sets his eyes upon Christ. Oh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's hope in the midst of our sin as we see the way that we have failed to treat others with dignity. One of the sweetest verses in the Bible comes in a very strange place in Scripture. Uh, the Apostle Paul is addressing sexual immorality in the church, and he makes this profound statement that should encourage all of us. Paul says this, You are not your own. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Oh, this verse can be unpacked in every area of our life. We are not our own. Do you understand how profound that is? You've been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. If you stay in your own, you will face the punishment that we so deserve because of our sin. But because of Christ, we are now owned by him. 
And so the way we respond is that we glorify God with our lives. This also means that we can and we should honor the Lord with our suffering. You see, God uses our suffering and pain to draw us closer to himself. Have you thought about this? How does God show his faithfulness to us in great ways? If, if life was just easy, you know, we're just sitting on a raft, sipping lemonade, you know, just going down the river, no problems, everything's great, man, nothing to worry about. Would we really know how faithful God is to us? No, it's in the midst of the suffering and trials of life that God says, you are mine, and I'm going to prove it to you. You're going to go through difficult things. You will have suffering. You will have trials in this world. But guess what? I am faithful, and I'm going to show myself faithful to you in the midst of them. That's why James tells us that suffering and trials are to be considered joy because it tests and deepens our faith and trust in our great creator and faithful God. I heard a church leader a number of years ago tell pastors to prepare their congregations for suffering, to suffer well. We need to suffer well. Because guess what? At some point in life, we will suffer. So we must prepare ourselves. The Apostle Paul did this in Scripture with the early church and also for us as he wrote in 2 Corinthians. So we do not lose heart, he says. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look... Not to the things that are seen, oh, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, are passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Have you ever considered suffering in this way? Suffering and trials turn our hearts from loving and, and holding on so tightly to this world to yearning for eternity, our next life to come, our eternal resting place with Christ, where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, right? Revelation tells us he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Valuing life at the end, allowing suffering to produce godly fruit and allowing God to bring about our last breath glorifies God. 
and it places us and our loved ones and the almighty and sovereign God in the rightful place. Allowing God to determine the number of days. Therefore, we should aim to value life broadly. Right? From the unborn to final breath and everywhere in between. We need to value life the way we treat others around us. We must stand for life. We must treat others with dignity. We must cherish one another, embrace suffering, and think biblically about the lives of the unborn, the lives of those who are facing the end of their lives. Let's fight as believers to see God's glory and His righteousness be displayed in this world and certainly in our everyday lives. I'll end with this. Helen Keller, she knew suffering. At a young age of two, can you imagine, she became blind and deaf. One of those is a handicapped enough. But can you imagine having both of those senses taken away? Seeing and hearing. But Helen Keller also knew Christ, her Savior. And she said this, she penned this, I thank God for my handicaps. <laughs> what? I thank God for my handicaps, she says. For through them I have not only found myself, found my work, purpose in life, but I have found my God. Before her passing at age 88, she penned these words. Death is no more than passing from one room into another. Although I might add, glorious passing from one room to another. She goes on, but there's a difference for me. It's a difference for me, you know, because in that other room, I shall be able to hear and see. And this, my friends, is true for all of us who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever you're going through, whatever trial, whatever suffering, whatever health issue, whatever financial issue, whatever relational issue, one day when we pass from one room to another, those things too will pass away. And we will be with our Savior forever and ever, completely healed, completely free of sin, and completely whole. As we sang earlier, now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Let's pray.
Father, you tell us in your word that we will face trials and suffering and difficulties in this world. And many of us in this room, our trials and sufferings and difficulties might look different. But God, you are the faithful God in all of our situations. Lord, we can trust you with our, our lives. Lord, help us to continue to recognize and realize that we are no longer our own. We don't own our lives. You do. And thanks be to you who bought our lives with the blood of Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us to live a life that glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen.